All right, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd ask you to open it up. Turn once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to reread this morning the same passage we looked at a few weeks ago. We're going to pick up our study where we left off on this very important but challenging subject of church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the entire chapter. And I remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not, not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with, with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Last time we began to look at this very challenging part of God's Word and we learned about a serious situation that had come up in the Corinthian church involving sexual immorality. It's the immorality that Paul describes in the first two verses, a man who has his father's wife. Put it bluntly, the sin of incest has come into the Corinthian church and although this form of immorality was not even tolerated by the promiscuous Greeks and Romans, it was being accepted within the Corinthian church. As a result, the witness of the Christians was being destroyed in the public sphere and the name of Jesus Christ was being exposed to public disgrace. Reports about this man's illicit relationship with his stepmother were being circulated far and wide, both inside and outside of the church. And from Paul's comments in verses 1 to 2, several facts about the situation become clear. First observation we made last time is that this man's sin was not a one-night stand that is now over and done with, but is rather an ongoing lifestyle of defiance against God from which he has not repented from which he has not shown any form of remorse. But a second observation that's even more troubling than the sin itself is the way that the church has responded to it. Although we may expect that Paul is writing this chapter to rebuke the man for what he has done, Paul is in fact writing this chapter uh, to the church in Corinth to rebuke the church for what it has not done, namely that they have not disciplined this individual or condemned the immorality within the camp. 
In failing to deal properly with the sin, the church of Corinth had become a scandal in their community. They were in danger of losing every remaining shred of credibility. It would seem that the Corinthian church, like many churches today, was proud of being tolerant and open-minded, non-judgmental. And that this church viewed their approval of this man's immorality as a mark of their own tolerance and spiritual maturity. This is how twisted and how depraved the thinking in Corinth had become. This ancient church is not at all unlike the so-called churches in our own day that proudly put the rainbow flag on the website or on the front door in a misguided effort to communicate to one another and to society at large that this community of faith is fully inclusive, that it will not stand in judgment on matters of sexual sin and biblical morality. In their own way, I think the Corinthians felt that they were doing what was humble and kind and gracious and overlooking the sin in their midst when in fact they were doing just the opposite. And you are arrogant, Paul says in verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Under the influence of worldly wisdom, the Corinthians had convinced themselves that toleration of sin was a form of humility and spiritual maturity. But Paul tells them in no uncertain terms, it is spiritual arrogance. Because whenever we attempt to bless what God has cursed, to condone what God has forbidden, we are essentially claiming to be morally superior to God. And we are saying in effect that we know better than God. And so churches that tolerate sin and bless various forms of immorality within their midst may appear on the surface to be loving and kind and humble, but in fact the inspired apostle declares them to be arrogant and proud because they are saying they are wiser than the Word of God and they are morally superior to the Holy Spirit who inspired that Word. This was the situation in Corinth, a church that should have been mourning and grieving over this man's immorality, taking corrective action against him, but a church that was instead boasting about their tolerance and their open-mindedness and their humility. It was a sad situation to say the least, and it's a situation tragically we see everywhere today in the Western world, a church that has moved off the authority of God's Word, a church that has thereby lost its moral compass its prophetic voice, and its evangelistic potency. If there's any remaining doubt about what God thinks about churches that tolerate and promote sexual immorality among their members, turn to the book of Revelation and hear the words of Christ to the church of Thyatira. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus. Friends, we may have a tendency to overlook sexual immorality in this so-called enlightened age we're living in, but the wisdom of this world will always be foolishness to a holy and righteous God. Situation described in Corinth in verses 1 and 2 
is described in 1 and 2, but in the remainder of the chapter, Paul is going to outline a strategy for church discipline that he expects this congregation to follow. And then he makes the important clarification about the way in which we should relate to those outside of the church fellowship, those who do not know and love our God. And so with God's help, that's where we're heading this time and next week. First of all, a look at Paul's strategy for church discipline in verses 3-8. to Secondly, a look at the limitation he places on discipline in verses 9-13. to Well, Paul's strategy for church discipline is stated several times in our passage, and that being the case, there is no question about the severity of this man's sin, the action that Paul believes this church must take if it is to remain faithful to the gospel. The end of verse 2, the the apostle says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Then in verse 5, the church is instructed, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. These are shocking words to say the least. We're going to talk about what they mean a little later. Verse 11, the Corinthians are told not to associate with the so-called brother. Finally, in verse 13, they are instructed to purge the evil man from among you. There is no ambiguity here about what must be done. And what Paul is really talking about here in our text is what we often refer to as excommunication. The biblical strategy for dealing with immorality and protecting the church's reputation and guarding the spiritual well-being of the members is to put this man out of the fellowship, to bar him from the Lord's table, and to remove his membership. As we work through our passage this morning, we're going to unpack exactly what excommunication means and why Paul believes that such drastic, severe action is needed in this situation. Now last time I mentioned that church discipline has all but disappeared in our evangelical churches. This is a subject that is rarely ever talked about from our evangelical pulpits, even though this was not always the case. At one time, church discipline was viewed by Protestants to be an essential mark of the true church on earth. Historically, Protestants in the Reformed tradition, which includes the Baptist tradition, have held that every church of Christ will be marked by three things. Number one, the faithful preaching of God's Word. Number two, the right administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Number three, the exercise of church discipline. And so church discipline was for many years a standard feature of every Protestant church, whether Baptist or Lutheran or Presbyterian or otherwise. But today that is no longer the case. And because of that reality, the words we read here in 1 Corinthians 5 can seem a bit foreign to our experience, perhaps even a bit extreme and hard to accept. I would venture to guess that some of us here today have never seen this form of discipline put into practice, and there are a number of reasons why that is so. As I mentioned last time, it's undeniable that Paul's teaching on church discipline has been used at times to justify a form of spiritual tyranny and abuse. Understandably, that has left wounds, perhaps the impression that the benefits of discipline are not worth the risks. It's undeniably true that some churches in the past have used discipline and excommunication to enforce man-made rules and traditions that have no firm basis in the Word of God so that people have been put out of the church for drinking a glass of wine, for smoking a cigar, for dancing, for going to the movie theater. 
We've talked about in other sermons, there is a tendency among some evangelicals to confuse biblical commands with human opinions. And whenever that happens, a culture of legalism can creep into the church and cause a great deal of spiritual harm to the body. Having come out of the fundamentalist tradition, I understand that risk perfectly well. I know that church discipline is sometimes exercised for reasons that would have left the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus scratching their heads in confusion and disbelief. Discipline, and especially excommunication, is only for professing Christians who stand in violation of Scripture. It is not for those who stand in violation of someone's personal scruples and opinions. Now, of course, if you have signed a church covenant that says you're not going to drink, you're not going to dance, that you're not going to go to the movies, you need to honor that agreement, you need to willingly give up those liberties, but regardless, the church of Christ should be taking its stand on the Word of God and not on the opinion of man. As Pastor Tim Keller said on Twitter a couple weeks ago, we need to be careful not to elevate our own preferences to moral standards and then judge others by them. We only do so to be superior. Excommunication is reserved for those who stand in clear violation of the Bible's teaching. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this step of putting someone out of the church is always the last resort and the final step in an ongoing process. It might be easy to get the impression here in 1 Corinthians 5 that excommunication is the first and the only step in church discipline. In actual fact, it is the final step. We know that it's the final step because of what the Lord Jesus taught us about this subject in Matthew 18. What I'd like you to do is to keep your fingers stuck in 1 Corinthians 5 and turn back with me to Matthew 18. I want to read that passage, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. We're going to see how Paul's words fit into a larger process of discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. These are very important words. Listen carefully. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two and three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Very familiar with those last couple verses, but you probably haven't connected those verses with the larger context, which is church discipline. Now you'll notice here in Matthew 18, the Lord Jesus outlines a process for church discipline that follows a series of four steps This teaching is absolutely critical for us to understand as we seek to work through conflict in the body of Christ and sin in the body of Christ. If you believe that someone in the church family has sinned against you, or that someone in the church family is committing a sin that is harming themselves or someone else, the very first step, according to Jesus' teaching, is to go to that person privately and have a personal, private conversation. Let me say to you that If we Christians were to observe this initial step in conflict resolution, 90% of our conflicts would be resolved quickly and discreetly without any need for discipline at all. 
The first obligation a Christian has in dealing with conflict and sin in the church is to go to your brother and sister privately to deal with the issue as privately and discreetly as you can. We are not to gossip about the conflict with others. We are not to circulate emails behind the scenes. We are not to air our grievances on Facebook. We are not to share the problem with the pastors and elders of the church. We are instructed by Jesus, go directly to the person we believe in the wrong. We deal with that person directly in a spirit of Christian love and grace. If you ever call me to tell me about a conflict you are having with another Christian here at Rosedale, as some people have done in the past, my first words to you are going to be this. Have you, brother or sister, gone to so-and-so to talk about that problem personally? And if your answer is no, I haven't done that, then my pastoral advice to you is going to be that you follow the directive of Jesus and go to the person directly unless there is a good reason why it would be unsafe for you to do so, unwise for you to do so, or inappropriate for you to do so. Principle here in Jesus' teaching is that private offenses and private sins are dealt with privately. And I'm convinced if we follow Jesus' teaching on this matter, many if not most of our sins and offenses against one another will be cleared up and resolved well before the pastor and the elders get involved, well before any formal discipline is needed. Now, of course, we all know there are situations where a private conversation with your brother or sister will not clear up the issue at hand. If that's the case, Jesus says you are to move on to step two. You are to return to that person with one or two witnesses from the church so that every charge may be established. Whenever it becomes necessary to involve other believers in a conflict or a sin, you should always choose those who demonstrate Christian maturity and wisdom. If possible, you should involve those who already have a relationship with the person and will be able to speak and to act in a godly and an even-handed way. Now, depending on the nature of the sin, especially in the case of sexual sin, it would be wise only to involve people of the same gender, men working with men and Christian women dealing with other women. But if at this point in the process the person's sin has been validated by witnesses and no peaceful and godly resolution has been reached between the parties, Jesus says it is now time to involve the church. It is at this point in the process and only at this point in the process that you should come into my office for a visit and inform me about the situation so that me and the other elders can meet with the person so we can evaluate the situation and prayerfully discern what steps need to be taken. Now, in many cases, a visit from the pastor or the elders will be sufficient to bring the person to a place of repentance to help that person deal with the sin issue. But in some cases, Paul says, even a pastoral visit will not be sufficient. And if that is the case, the church leadership needs to begin a formal process of discipline. First step in that process might be to remove the person from their position of service in the church and to suspend that person from the Lord's table so that they will recognize the gravity of their sin and sense the need to make things right with the Lord with others. At this point in the process, the congregation will likely not know what is happening because once again, the principle is that we work through conflict as privately and discreetly as we can, can keeping the sphere of involvement as small as we can for as long as we can. And of course, it goes without saying that the elders will be praying for the person. We will be tracking the situation very carefully. We will be doing whatever we can to bring the backslidden Christian to repentance. 
But if after all of these remedial steps, the person still persists in their sin, or if the sin becomes public and begins to affect the reputation of the church, the spiritual health of the other members, the final step in the process is excommunication. What Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 5, what Jesus describes in Matthew 18, verse 7, when he says, And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, Jesus is saying we are to relate to the rebellious person as though he are a, were a non-believer who still needs to be evangelized and converted. To excommunicate someone from the church of Christ is to put in practice what Paul describes in these verses. If this sounds like a serious step to take, it's because it is. This is a very serious step to take. It should never be taken lightly or flippantly by the church. You know, friends, whenever the church, local church baptizes a Christian and then receives that person into membership, the church is really making a public declaration about that person standing before God. Through baptism and church membership, we are stating publicly and openly that we as a congregation affirm this person to be a believer, that we recognize this person to be part of the universal church and now as part of the local church. The church does not make people Christians through baptism and membership, but it is an authoritative declaration. Jonathan Lehman of Capitol Hill Baptist Church draws the comparison between a church that baptizes and an embassy that issues passports. When the government issues you a passport, they are not making you a citizen of the country, but they are making an authoritative declaration that you are a citizen. And that's exactly what the church does whenever we baptize, whenever we receive someone into membership. We are not making them into Christians. We are declaring them to be what they already are. And what we need to understand here in our text is that excommunication is also a public declaration that the church makes. Whenever the church excommunicates an unrepentant member and then removes that person from membership, the congregation is essentially declaring to that person to one another, to outsiders. We can no longer view this person as a Christian believer. We can no longer relate to this person as a brother or sister in Christ. It does not mean that we don't love this person. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to pursue the person with the gospel, to pray that they will repent of their sin. But it does mean we are no longer certain about this person standing before God. It may be that the person is living in a temporary state of rebellion, or it may be they are a non-believer who's committed all-out apostasy. Time and eternity will tell. But whatever the case may be, their words and their actions in this moment show they are in grave spiritual danger. We can no longer assume the validity of their profession of faith. Excommunication is a declaration the church makes. Jesus actually refers to it in Matthew 18, 18, when he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In its context, that statement from our Lord is referring to church discipline. It is referring to the spiritual authority that God has entrusted to the local church, either to receive a person into membership through baptism or else to remove a person from membership through excommunication. You see, the church here on earth functions as an embassy of God's kingdom, and a robust theology of the church is something that we evangelical Protestants must recapture in our day if we are to be true and faithful to the Word of God. There are a lot of wonderful strengths about the evangelical movement, but our theology of the church is not one of them. 
it is perhaps our greatest theological weakness. The symptoms of that weakness are twofold. Number one, our lack of emphasis on church membership. Number two, our unwillingness to practice discipline. You know, one of the main reasons why discipline is so rarely practiced among evangelicals today is because church membership is so rarely emphasized. Throughout North America today in many denominations, you will find that many of the people who regularly attend our churches have never formally joined those churches. They have never formally entered into a covenant with their brothers and sisters in Christ. That reality in our modern times has very unfortunate consequences we must deal with at a practical level. At a practical level, it is impossible to practice church discipline if we do not practice church membership. And the reason for that is we cannot put someone out of the church who is not already in it. If we believe that church discipline is biblical and right, we are forced to conclude that church membership is biblical and right. You cannot have one without the other. You know, as a pastor, God has entrusted me with the responsibility of tending His flock on behalf of Christ. That responsibility includes feeding the flock with the Word. It includes caring for sheep that are weak and injured. It includes beating off the wolves. Sometimes it includes chasing and disciplining the sheep that wander away. But if you have not formally declared yourself to be part of the flock, if you have not formally covenanted with your brothers and sisters to uphold a set of doctrinal beliefs and to adhere to a biblical lifestyle, then my responsibility to you as a pastor is somewhat unclear. Now to be sure, as a pastor, as someone who has a pastor's heart, I will love you as my brother and sister in Christ. I will do everything I can to help you to grow spiritually. But if you have not formally declared yourself to be a member of this flock, there is very little I can do to keep you formally accountable as a shepherd of the flock. After all, how can me and the other elders put you under discipline for something that you've never agreed to in the first place? How can we keep you accountable to biblical beliefs that you've never actually affirmed? And the short answer to that question is that we cannot. Or at least we'll be greatly hindered in doing so. And so I want to challenge you this morning with this biblical truth. Membership and discipline go together. We cannot have one without the other. And if your response to that biblical truth is to breathe a sigh of relief, or perhaps to consider withdrawing your membership, perhaps there's a deeper issue in your heart that you need to wrestle with before God. An issue about the spiritual authority that God has given His church. You know, the truth of the matter is, here in North America, we value our independence, we value our personal autonomy, we chafe and we buck against any notion of authority and accountability. Because so many Christians tend to see the church as something that is optional and supplementary to a personal private walk with Christ, our tendency is to move around from church to church and to jump ship at the first sign of trouble or at the first mention of discipline. Because of that reality, some well-meaning pastors have totally given up on discipline and see it as a biblical ideal that is impossible to put into practice. Now friends, I understand the cultural issues that lead many of us to resist church membership and authority, but I want to suggest we, we are not to be governed by the whims of our culture. We are to be governed by the clear teaching and the authority of God's Word. And God's Word is very clear. Every Christian is to be accountable to the local church. 
Not so that we can exercise tyranny over one another, not so we can treat one another unkindly, but rather that we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. The Apostle to the Hebrews puts it, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I need you, brothers and sisters, to help keep me on the right path. You need me to help keep you on the right path. We need one another in the body of Christ. That's why church membership and church discipline are so critically important for our modern churches. Why we must in this day rediscover these biblical truths and put them into practice. Well, so far I've given you a bird's eye view of church discipline from the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul. But as we dig into this subject a bit deeper in 1 Corinthians 5, there are a number of important truths about excommunication that will help us to understand it and to know how we should practice it biblically. So I've already mentioned excommunication is the very final step in a process of church discipline. It involves the removal of membership and suspension from the Lord's table. One reason why I say that is because of what Paul teaches in verse 11, that we are not to eat or to enjoy Christian fellowship with a person who has been put out of the church. Although Paul's instruction not to eat with the person under discipline probably extends beyond these special moments that when we gather around the table, it certainly includes those times around the table, and especially because of what the Lord's table represents. Aside from representing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, the Lord's table is a meal that represents our unity and our fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters. A little later on in chapter 11, Paul will deal directly with the Lord's table. He's going to emphasize just how important it is for Christians to examine themselves before they come to this table, making sure first and foremost that we know the Lord and making sure that we are not living in a state of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. Here at Rosedale, every time we approach the table, every time we eat these elements together as a family, I remind you about the importance of self-examination. What I'm doing is encouraging you to exercise a form of self-discipline, allowing the elements to pass by if there is unresolved sin or conflict in your life. Now, of course, as I often say, that doesn't mean you need to be sinless to come to the table. Otherwise, who could come to the table? But it does mean you need to be willing to deal with the sin, to turn away from it. Under normal circumstances, the decision of whether or not to partake in the supper is left to the believer's conscience. In the case of formal church discipline, the elders of the church will privately instruct the person not to profane the table by eating in an unworthy way, because in so doing, Paul says, they are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. We are not playing games when we come to the Lord's table, friends. We are doing something that is very serious. We ought always to come to the table with a serious and a sober mindset. And it is always and without exception inappropriate for a Christian to participate in communion if there is unrepentant sin in your life. And if you are under church discipline, the elders and the pastor of the church will, will enforce it. This is the way that the Church of Christ has handled discipline down through the centuries. This is the way we will handle it here at Rosedale if and when such a situation arises. 
Excommunication involves the removal of membership, suspension from the Lord's table. Secondly, we learn in these verses that excommunication involves the entire fellowship and not merely the pastors and the elders. Have a look at verses 3-5 to again of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Although there are many churches and denominations that entrust the responsibility of discipline totally to the pastor and the elders of the church, Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians indicates the authority to excommunicate lies with the congregation as a whole and not merely with the church leaders. As an apostle of Christ, Paul is giving authoritative instructions to the church that they are to gather together in the name of Jesus Christ and they are to issue the declaration corporately as a church body. In other words, this is not Paul's declaration. It is the declaration of the Corinthian church as a whole of the entire membership. Although the process of calling the members meeting, explaining the situation would definitely be led by the elders and the pastors who have initiated the process, the actual authority to excommunicate lies with the congregation as a whole. Here at Rosedale, whenever we welcome a new member into our fellowship, the entire congregation stands in affirmation of that person. If a situation arises where we need to excommunicate, all of the church members will be involved in putting the person out and issuing the declaration. And most likely that would be at a private members' meeting. When discipline reaches the point of excommunication, the entire congregation is involved, not only because that's where the locus of authority lies, but also because our corporate, our personal interactions with this so-called brother or sister are going to change from now on. They're going to be different than they were before. Now this is where we need to have a closer look at verse 5, what is probably the most difficult sentence in the entire chapter. Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. New Testament scholars have proposed a number of different interpretations for Paul's words here. I believe the most likely meaning of deliverance to Satan is simply the act of excommunicating the person and putting that person back outside of the church. To excommunicate a believer from the fellowship of the local church is to turn the person over to Satan. And the reason I take that interpretation is because the New Testament envisions Satan's sphere of influence as being outside of God's kingdom and therefore as outside of the local outposts of the kingdom. For example, in 1 John 5.19, we read, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. When God saves you, He rescues you from the kingdom of darkness. He transfers you to the kingdom of Christ. But when the church excommunicates, it is essentially declaring the person in question to be back on the outside under the rule and dominion of, of the enemy. And practically speaking, to turn someone over to Satan means there will be intentional disruption of Christian fellowship. There will be a definite change in our interactions with the person. Although the person is welcome to attend church services just as any non-believer is welcome to attend, he is no longer welcome to gather with God's family at the Lord's table. 
And although we may entertain the hope that this person is a backslider who will one day repent and return, we are no longer going to give them the impression that everything is okay. Their salvation is secure. We will not grant this person a false assurance of salvation on the pass of some on the basis of some past profession of faith or prayer to receive Christ. Rather, we will, we will warn sternly this person through word and through action that God's wrath will indeed come on all those who refuse to repent. Verse 11, Paul gives more detail on this aspect of discipline where he specifies that the members of the church are no longer to associate with the person or even to eat with him. There are some Christians, some denominations that have taken Paul's words to imply a complete shunning, a total break with the person. But I'm not convinced that that is what Paul has in mind. The Greek word translated associate there in verse 11 is not a word that refers to casual interactions. Rather, it is a word that implies close and intimate fellowship. It means a mixing and a mingling together. And so if we encounter this person in the grocery store or on the street, there is no need to turn around and walk the other way. Rather, we should greet the person politely. We should interact with the person just as we would interact and greet any other acquaintance who does not know the Lord. What we are not to do, however, is to communicate through our words or our hospitality that we consider this person to be spiritually safe and secure. That's Paul's main point in this text. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't think that Paul is commending an Amish-style shunning, nor do I believe that would be the most productive thing to do. His point is that our interactions are not to give the impression that this person is safe or to grant a false assurance of salvation that could lead them further down the pathway to hell and eternal destruction. Well, this brings us finally then to the motive for excommunication, which is twofold according to Paul's teaching in this passage. On the one hand, we're told that excommunication is for the benefit of the rebellious person. On the other hand, we're told it's for the good of the church family as a whole. Now considering, first of all, the rebellious sinner himself, Paul instructs the church they are to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, but then there's a purpose clause after that. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, friends, the motive behind church discipline is never punitive. It is always redemptive. That is an essential point for us to understand about this teaching. We are never ever to discipline a person in order to vent our anger against them or to get revenge on them, to derive some sadistic pleasure from public shame. Whenever we discipline a person in the church, we are doing it for their spiritual good. We are doing it with the end goal that they will either return to Christ or else that they will experience the new birth and enter into the family of God. Although it seems almost unthinkable to turn another person over to Satan, the truth is this action has a redemptive and a constructive purpose in God's plan. Just like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, there are times when a person needs to eat slop with the pigs before they will come to their senses and return to the Father's house. Sometimes the roots of sin go so deep into our hearts and lives, we need to be brought to the very depths of our human depravity before we forsake the sin and embrace the forgiveness that Christ offers through His cross. And in this redemptive sense, our sovereign God can and will use Satan to accomplish his sanctifying work in the life of the rebellious sinner. 
As we know, Satan is ultimately a created being under the authority of God. And in God's sovereign hands, this evil creature is a tool through which God can accomplish his refining purpose. Now that might be hard to hear, but it's absolutely true. Last fall, you'll remember when we studied through the book of Job, we saw how God used Satan to refine Job's character. And if he ordained that activity back in the Old Testament, he can certainly ordain it today in our situation. This is Paul's point in these verses. The handing over to Satan is not a punitive action. It is a redemptive action. It's an action intended to destroy the flesh and the remaining sin so that the spirit of this person can be saved on judgment day. Now to be sure, this is very severe. This is frightening. But in some situations, it is precisely the medicine that is needed to bring a person to a genuine place of repentance and restoration with God and with the family of God. Now, excommunication is first and foremost for the benefit of the sinner. Secondly, it is for the benefit of the church family as a whole. This is what Paul is teaching in verses 6-8. to Your boasting is not good, he says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here in these verses, Paul is bringing an Old Testament image connected with the celebration of Passover. Before the Jewish people celebrated Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to search through their houses to completely cleanse the house from any trace of leaven because it is a common biblical symbol for sin and impurity. And to this very day, if you go to a Jewish household, they will symbolically, ceremonially search the house for leaven before the day of the Passover. Leaven, if you're not aware, is a piece of fermented dough that was used in baking so the bread would rise, much like yeast in our modern baking. When a person would bake a new loaf of bread, they would take a bit of fermented dough that was left over from the last batch and mix it into the new batch so the bacteria would multiply and spread throughout the dough. And Paul is using this common baking metaphor to explain what happens when we Christians allow sin and rebellion to fester unchecked in our lives and in our churches. It will eventually spread. It will eventually multiply. It will contaminate everything. Just as every Jewish home was to be intentionally cleansed of leaven before Passover, so the church of Christ is to be cleansed of all unrepentant sin. Not only for the spiritual health of the unrepentant sinner, but also for the good of the church as a whole. Paul's point is that sin, disobedience, rebellion, if left unchecked, will spread and contaminate. And he emphasizes then in verse 7, the need for us to become in our spiritual practice what we already are in our spiritual position. As Christian men and women, the reality is Christ is already cleansed. He's already forgiven us of our sin. He has declared us to be just and righteous. He has credited Christ's perfect righteousness to our account. That's what we call the doctrine of justification. Positionally, God looks at Christians as though we've never sinned, but practically, there are many times in our lives where we fail. There are many times where we fall short of God's righteous standard. And so Paul's point there in verse 7 is that we must become what we already are. We must become in our practice what we are in our position, both as individual Christians and also as corporate church families. 
one of the means of grace that God has given us to accomplish this goal is discipline. Private discipline in our own lives as individuals. Corporate discipline in the local church. You know, I think Paul's words there in verses 7 and 8 are particularly appropriate this morning as we prepare to approach the Lord's table to declare our unity with one another and our unity with Jesus Christ in His body and blood. Paul declares at the end of verse 7 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And this is very good news for imperfect sinners like you and like me because it is through that sacrifice and it is only through that sacrifice that we can be forgiven of sin and rescued from the wrath of God. God has marvelously and graciously rescued us from the eternal consequences of our sin and our response to that great salvation must be to live lives that are pleasing to Him. Purging the old leaven of sin from our hearts and from our lives and from our churches and living together in such a way that we walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth.